Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. My name is Tiago and I've been a full-time indie hacker for the past two years. And at first, my main goal was to actually create something that would pay the bills. And after about one year and a half, I did. My co-founder and I created PodSquiz that is now paying our salaries, which is great. But I never really thought about what would come next. What are the next steps? And actually, an exit is a real possibility, selling your project. And I've met a lot of other bootstrappers, other makers that were able to sell their project even before making any revenue. There's a lot to be said about selling and acquiring startups, but I don't know much about it. I only know that there's a number thrown around, which is 10x. You can just multiply your ARR by 10 and that's it. That's the number that people will buy your startup for. Well, I always thought that that number was a bit outrageous, out of this world. It makes no sense that someone just 10x your ARR. And that's actually true. There's a lot of different nuances in the world of actually selling your project. And today I have an expert in this. He's the founder of MicroAcquire, which is now Acquire.com. And his name is Andrew Gazdecki. He has this website where you can list your startup or your project and it will help you find a buyer. He has sold many or at least helped sell many, many projects, indie projects, startups, and yes, today I have him here in the podcast and it was great because I got to ask all the questions I had. So in this conversation, you will learn more about his projects, the ones that did not went well and the ones that didn't and everything he has learned from it. And of course, everything that there's to know about the world of selling startups. Hopefully after this, you will have a better understanding on how much you can expect buyers will give for your project. And last but not least, we'll be also speaking about branding. You know, Andrew Gazdecki is an expert in marketing. He has done really cool stuff on Twitter. If you haven't seen it, just go to his profile. And I have this question, which is, how much should one invest in brand awareness in, in this kind of marketing techniques that do not bring customers right away? How do you measure that? Those are all the topics that will be covered in this conversation. So without any further ado, here's Andrew. We are live with Andrew Gazdecki. Did I say your name correctly? You did. Gazdecki. Nice. Tell me about this name. Like, where, where is it uh, coming from? Uh, it's uh, Polish. Polish. So your, your background, uh, do you speak Polish? No. Um, so fun fact about myself, I actually have never met another Gazdecki in my life. I don't know my dad's okay. side too well, but um, I actually, uh, someone else told me it was Polish, but if you ask like a Polish person, they'll say it's pronounced Gazdecki. Um, oh, that's about yeah. all I know. Like I have some friends from Poland. I have to say it's so hard to say their names. It's so hard. Uh, but it's, I find it funny because a lot of people ask you this. I was just like uh, listening to an interview you did uh, in the My First Million podcast. And they exactly, I think that was one of the first questions, like how to say your name. <laughs> yeah, growing up, it was uh, the common ones are Gazdiki, Gazdaki. <laughs> um, yeah. And then when I was growing up too in elementary school, like when a substitute teacher would come in, my 
first name the W cuts off. So it'd be like Andre. Is Andre here? And I'd be like, God yeah. damn it, it's a substitute teacher. <laughs> so I'm yeah. used to it. You you grew up in the US, right? Correct. I was born in Detroit and then I grew up in a small beach town called San Clemente in Southern California. Okay. And were you like born in a family of entrepreneurs? Like tell me a little bit about your entrepreneurial background. Like where where did this uh, eagerness for entrepreneurship and building companies started from? Yeah, good question. Um, so to answer your question, no, I didn't have really any sort of like entrepreneurs in my family. Uh, I would, I would say I kind of got an entrepreneurship, um, by my environment in San Clemente. San Clemente is like okay. a beautiful beach town full of rich kids. And I was kind of like the poor kid at school. Okay. Um, awesome, awesome place to grow up. But um, early on, I mean, I just hung out with a lot of kids that had, you know, very wealthy parents. Um, my, my parents, you know, never graduated college. Um, and so, you know, you go to these big houses and stuff and see these nice cars. And I, I always would ask like, how do you get that? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you, like, why do you have that? And so, um, money became like a, a very, it was very front of mind, I guess you could say. And, you know, I, I was kind of that kid who learned early on that, okay, to get this stuff, like you got to start a business. And so I started, you know, multiple businesses as a kid, like at an eBay store when I was 13, I used, my thing was I would <laughs> find misspellings. This is embarrassing, but I'll share it with you. Uh, specifically, uh, Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies were big. So like any sort of misspelling of a rare Beanie Baby, I'd buy it and then I'd list it with the correct name and get some arbitrage on it. Um, what was the other thing? Um, I think That's it was super like smart. Ever, EverQuest <laughs> characters, EverQuest, the super nerdiest stuff you could think of. Um, and then I would make websites for like all the bands at my high school. That was fun. And then I got into photography. So I'd get uh, like free access to like rock shows and stuff, which was fun. Um, but That's when cool. I look back on it, I did it mostly out of, uh, just necessity. Like if I wanted a new skateboard, I had to go buy one and my parents didn't have yeah. money. So I had to go figure out how to get money myself. And then I really just kind of fell in love with all of it, you know, yeah. just learning businesses like, um, you know, when you get that first sale, you get kind of a rush. And so mm -hmm. I, I knew pretty early that was a game I, I wanted to play. So this just kept playing you know it. I, I'm now uh, reading a book called, was it like Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Do you know this book? Yeah, I've never read it, uh, but I probably should. That's on, that's like a, a yeah. book, you know, those movies where you say you've never seen it. And they're like, yeah, you've yeah, seen yeah, that movie? Exactly. It's like yeah. one of those books for me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've, um, the author popped up on my YouTube feed a couple of times. And then I just actually, I got gifted the book. And it's funny because, it somehow remembers me of, of the story you're telling. So the story is that the, the guy, like the, the author, when he was a kid, he had, uh, well, his real dad was like a graduate, like a professor, but he was, you know, doing, as he calls, the rat race. So working for others all of his life, always, quote unquote, poor. And then he met this other guy, which was an entrepreneur that taught him all about, you know, uh, financial literacy and, and so on. And my question here is that, okay, 
I understand you, all of your friends were like richer and they had like good things and you wanted that. But then you said that the only way you sought to reach that was to start a business. And that's interesting because it could be, okay, maybe I would just get a job. So why, you know, not getting a job? Why, why did you, did you get any kind of uh, mentor or someone that would tell you, no, like if you really want money, you need to start your own thing. Yeah, I would just ask my friend's parents. I'd be like, what, what do you do? <laughs> like one of my friend's parents, he owned um, Circuit Footwear, um, uh, Special Blends, some other like snowboard brands. Uh, Circuit Footwear back in the day was the shoe. that They had like Chad <laughs> Muska, if you skate. Um, one of my friends, his dad owned like some, I believe it was like some home theater company. Um, one of my other friend's parents owned a development a real estate development company that would build like big track homes. So they were doing big yeah. stuff. And I would always ask my friend's parents and they're like, dude, why even on like LinkedIn today? I got one specific um, friend whose dad always still like, cause he's seen my career progress and stuff like that. In high school, I would go to my buddy's house and then I'd be like, Hey, is your dad home? I just want to like chat it up with him. And really? so he'd tell me, yeah, I was just curious. <laughs> it wasn't like a, Hey, how do I do all? It was just like, Hey, mm-hmm. I'm like really into you. You build track homes. Okay. So how does that work? How long does it take? And it was just natural, um, curiosity, but, um, so that kind of put the light bulb, like, okay, all these people are building businesses. Um, that's right. what I need to be doing. And then if you just do the math on, you know, if you want to become a millionaire, um, and frankly, that kind of was my goal in the beginning. Um, you know, cause being poor sucks. <laughs> like there's no other way to put it. Um, yeah. and it, you know, let's say you make 200 K a year, you don't spend anything. You really take home a hundred K. So that's basically if you're not spending literally mm. anything and you had to save that for, you know, 15 years, assuming you have rent and you have food. And so, so the, the, the time just doesn't add up. And so it became pretty apparent that, um, you know, you need to build an asset and then sell that asset. And then, you know, the second way to create wealth, which I think the book you're referring to talks about is you mm. buy assets as investments. Yeah, grow. exactly. Yeah. He speaks a lot about buying assets instead of liabilities and kind of gives me a little bit a perspective of, on how, you know, yeah, we just don't learn enough about financial literacy and uh, how like our society is made for you to spend money. And not really to build money, you know, to build wealth. And, uh, and like, how was your relationship then with your where, with your parents? Like, would you try to come home and, and explain to them? Did you see right away that they were maybe making some mistakes in terms of uh, you know how they were managing their money? I mean, I was so young. I mean, it's hard to really be like a financial advisor to your parents. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Hey, like go to this, but they were just doing the best they could, you know, um, Mm. you know, that's, that's kind of where I'd leave it is they Mm. worked hard, you know, they, they just didn't have the best. Like my, my mom had me when I was 20, I have an older brother. Mm. Um, and so when you're put in a situation like that, you know, young kids, like so early, it's just so hard to, you know, find a way out. So they did, they did the best they absolutely could. Mm. Do you think it's it's possible for anyone starting in a poor family to become rich? Yeah. Do you think that 
I don't know. This is a, a common argument, right? Like a lot of people say, no, you need to to be raised with the right background. Um, and I don't know. I'm just wondering if there's if it's really if if wealth is really available for everyone. Uh, yeah, it it is. You think so? Uh, well, the way I kind of think about it is, you know, there's a lot of like survivorship bias of like, oh, I made yeah. it, and you know, I think maybe that's kind of the the crowd I'm in. But I didn't come from too much. Um, but the mm. one thing I didn't do was make a bunch of excuses and say I need this, I need that, and da da da. Like, mm. you know, I think the main thing I understand is there's other people who have been in your situation and worse situations and have figured it out. So yeah, like it's not impossible. So it, it actually kind of bugs me when people are like, I need rich parents. I need like investors. I need like this. I need like that. I need a mentor. I need blah, blah, like whatever it is. It's like, yeah. you can go out and find those things. If you just take action, stop making excuses. Yeah. But I mean, I wish I had a, you know, trust fund, rich parents. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, you, it'd be more helpful. Do you, know, like, do you think it's a superpower for you to come from, I guess, a, a poorer family without that, you know, background money? Did this give you, like, certain amount of skills that perhaps your richer friends wouldn't have? I mean, when you go through different hardships in life, it, it definitely ingrains something in your personality. And a big part of entrepreneurship, I truly believe, is, is mental. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is... Yeah. Um, you know, when you're running a startup, especially as, you know, your team grows and you're, you know, the CEO of the business, um, the job can kind of suck. And what I mean by that is, um, you don't ever really get a chance to focus on, uh, the good stuff because there's not, there's no real point in focusing on the good stuff. So you're, you're constantly being pulled into the biggest problem, you know, the, the mm. weakest link on your team, you know, the biggest problem in your sales process or, uh, you know, the biggest strategy decisions that, you know, you have a 50, 50 chance being right. Um, so, but the flip side to that is, you know, when you've kind of, you know, gone through some diversity and overcome some other challenges, you just are kind of used to it. You know, I always say, yeah. um, you know, it's, there's a Tupac quote, but you know, after every dark night comes a brighter day, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it kind of lends a thought of Shake every problem. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, shake it off and like stop feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. Um, but every problem has a solution. And I think when you enjoy solving problems and when you've kind of, you know, had to overcome certain things in life, when mm -hmm. whether that's growing up or through college or it could be later in life, there's no specific time frame in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it builds that, that mental muscle of, yeah, shit's going to go wrong and you got to be comfortable yeah. You know, in those situations, be calm and be able to think clearly. But then most importantly, um, you know, I always point. say you got to learn yeah. to love it when it sucks as well, you know, because when you enjoy even the bad times, I think that's what the big separator between entrepreneurs mm. is because when it gets super hard, that's when a lot of entrepreneurs quit. And, you know, and a lot that's, of others love it. They just love it. And yeah, I, gotta, when it gets it, hard, I love it. I was like, okay, that's a challenge. Let's fix it. Yeah. Like for me personally, when I go through, business problems, issues, everybody has them. And I've made a billion mistakes too. So I've made mm -hmm. probably every mistake you can list. Um, but I, I like to just work the problem. That's kind of what, that's my mm -hmm. stress reliever. It's not going to the gym. It's not taking an ice bath. It's not, you know, <laughs> like it's literally what's the problem? What are the options? Okay, let's go. Yeah. So like I, I guess bias I, for action also yeah. is kind of a trade that comes out. 
when I started my journey as an entrepreneur, I, I was looking for a recipe. I was like, okay, there's a lot of people that are succeeding. Probably there's a recipe, a bunch of actions we can take that will lead to success. And what I've realized in the end is that no, like everyone is figuring out and every situation is different. Every company, every business is different. And the, the kind of common denominator between all of this is that people just did trial and error. They learned from their mistakes. They tried something, they analyzed it, they, see, they saw if it worked or not, and then they adapted uh, enough until that somehow they found uh, a gold or they found the success. Yeah, I think one thing, that's a, that's a really great point. I think if you pull back the curtain too, and a lot of like entrepreneurs you might look up to or ones that are like killing it or whatever, Behind all that is a ton of failure. It's a bunch of dumb businesses made. Oh, yeah. It's a bunch of, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. lessons learned. Like if I had to give you a framework on how to become a successful entrepreneurship entrepreneur, I'd just say, here's the ball, just keep shooting it, you know, because you'll, yeah. you'll get a little better, but you need to do it like daily and like learn to love that process and then learn mm-hmm. to love like when you lose and then learn something from it. It's an yeah. iterative process. And then, um, another point to make too, is I think a lot of people, you know, I always say entrepreneurship is a game of grit and perseverance, not intelligence. Cause if you overthink mm. stuff, like you're going to start a business, your chances of success are so low. So if you get all analytical about it and like, you know, have like a 50 page business plan, you'll just, you'll probably just talk yourself out of it. Mm. There's a recent conversation with the founder of NVIDIA and he mm. literally said, if he could go back 30 years, one, one, what would he do differently? He said he wouldn't start the company because <laughs> how hard the journey was. So it's, I ah, think there's, you know, okay. a level of, um, um, naivety that entrepreneurs need, you know, kind oh, of yeah. like a blind belief to succeed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one, one thing that I have noticed, so I, I've been failing a lot and recently, uh, my co-founder and I, we found success with our uh, startup, Squeeze Bootstrap Startup. And it was completely different. So from the moment we started and started like sharing it with the world, we saw when we got some traction, as we have, we have never seen this traction before. We started many businesses in the past, and, like we never seen this, you know. Um, and I guess that was the first time, you know, after 10 years of like trying this out, uh, that I found what is called product market fit. Uh, and it was a complete, it's a different game for when you go from trying hustling and then product market fit and actually getting money in and seeing people like lining up to use their product. It's a different stage of, of being a, a business person. And I started learning a lot of new things that I haven't learned before. Um, and I wanted to ask you, like, do you remember the first time a product of yours, uh, got this product market fit that you found? Well, like this is different from you know, maybe selling things on eBay. Like this is growing, this is like a life of its own. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, when you, when you find product market fit, like there's definitely moments where you're like, holy shit, like this yeah. is growing fast, way faster than you expected. Um, and it's rare. And when it happens, you know, enjoy those moments because it's definitely an adrenaline rush. That's, that's hard to explain. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like with my first company or not my first company, but let's just call my first real company. Uh, the first time I actually like incorporated, um, we found product market fit maybe like a year in pretty strong. Um, 
I had built like a really bad prototype with um, a developer because I'm I'm not technical. And what I would do is it was like a like a it was the ugliest page. Only I knew how to do it. But what I could do is basically customize a mobile app through a web interface. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, we struck a partnership with this agency in Switzerland because they were using the template thing. Like he figured out how to use it somehow. Okay. And he was making these apps for these um, uh, big hotels in uh, like France, Germany, and there were Mata hotels. But my, my point being is I asked him, you know, how I could help him sell more of these mobile apps. And this is in like 2010 when the iPhone just came out. Okay. I remember asking him, you know, how I could help him sell more mobile apps. And he brought up this uh, distribution strategy of, white labeling our software so he could put his branding on it, which would allow him to charge his own pricing and he could bundle it in with his, you know, social media marketing and web design marketing Mm -hmm. packages Mm -hmm. that he was doing. And once that happened, we just went boom, just straight. Uh, I remember because I asked, I was like, well, we didn't, we didn't have the functionality. So, and we're just in like a, a room like this big and there's like two other, two of my buddies next to me. And I just said, will you pre-subscribe to like 50 mobile apps, like upfront yearly payment? Just kind of was like throwing a Hail Mary. And he did. And so right there, just our growth chart went like that. And then Mm -hmm. immediately from there, um, you know, we obviously started, instead of selling to small businesses, we started selling to agencies. And that basically, we went from selling one mobile app, like after 10 calls to... Yeah. selling packages of like 30 in a one call close wow. and it was wild and that is crazy yeah that was the right so it, place right time business but yeah so you had already the, the product the only thing that you didn't properly have was the target customer and or like the way you packaged it and once that changed it changed the whole business yeah because our initial go to market was we were cold calling restaurants and so when you cold okay. call a restaurant, it's it's super, super difficult because you're trying to find the owner of the business, the decision maker. And then we were selling apps, so mobile apps. So when right. we would call, they would be like, you want our appetizer menu? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and then really the way small business owners buy is, you know, there's, there's a, a high level of trust that's required because they only have typically a SMB. I'm sure it's higher now, but the number was um, SMBs will spend around like 500 to a thousand a year on marketing and that's it. Mm-hmm. And so a mobile app will cost like 50 to a hundred dollars a month. So we're taking that whole budget and the best way to get to them is through pre-existing relationships. So by yeah. white labeling mm-hmm. our product, when we would call web agencies, we would have a much bigger value proposition because for a restaurant, mm-hmm. they're like, I don't get it. What do you, I don't need that. Like people are going to come in and eat yeah, my food yeah, yeah, without yeah. your product. Um, exactly. but for they don't web, know you, right? Yeah, as well. Yeah, for a web design agency though, uh, we had the value proposition of, hey, are any of your clients asking about mobile applications or do you plan on offering mobile app development at your agency? Mm-hmm. Um, because and then we'd have some stat that was like, this was like our sales process that I made because um, we've read like, you know, new customers are, you know, 57% more likely to work with you if you have all the services they're going to need. And they're like, uh, yeah, we're thinking about it. 
And then we'd ask, well, are you going to hire a mobile developer? And they're like, no. And we're like, well, would you be interested in like a full out of the box custom solution where we handle the tech, you handle the sales. And then they were like, interesting. How does that work? <laughs> and then we would sign up agencies like clockwork because they had the problem. They had yeah. existing an existing book of business. And then we mm-hmm. gave them a new product to sell their customers. They could bundle it or they could sell it individually. What is the name of the company? Uh, business apps, B-I-Z-N-E-S-S apps. So that's the one that you scaled to 10 million ARR? Yeah. That's crazy. That's And that was fully bootstrapped. We had raised um, 100K from two uh, local Chico. I went to Chico State uh, and I raised money from two local entrepreneurs. So okay, I like to say it's bootstrap, but technically not zero. Right. But take it mm-hmm. as you will. And so now what, what I'm interested in, in, in learning is, is because, of course, I also, you know, use this opportunity since I'm, I get to speak with, you know, seasoned entrepreneurs to also learn and, and, and get lessons for my own startup. And we, as well with, with the, my company, PodSquiz, we reached uh, this product market fit and there was a huge growth at first. And then we, we also caught the, the AI wave and and everything and now it's kind of stagnating we can feel it we don't have the momentum we had once we had because there's like tons of competition now and people they are not as excited about ai as before so now the question is okay we are transitioning this from you know uh indie project that went well to a company and it's i feel that now it's completely different now there's not a lot of new features that we can add but there's a lot of more work in marketing and and I don't know, creating this, making this more stable, you know, like a proper corporate. And my question is for you, uh, what what changed both in, in business apps and, and micro acquire or acquire? Like, what is the big biggest change that, that happens when you go from the, the beginning, starting, it's working to, okay, let's make this into a company? I mean, really, really two things, and you got to make sure you get them right in, in order. Um, first one is um, a shift from, you know, thinking about product development and stuff like that, in my opinion, over to distribution. I used to tell my whole team that we're not a software company, we're a distribution company. So I kind of like ingrained that in my team's mind is we're a distribution company mm-hmm. because we were never selling directly to our end customer. I was saying, we're distribution. We're trying to partner with the biggest companies in the world to sell our product for us. Um, mm-hmm. And then this set, so distribution mindset shift. And then also you need a team. Like you can't do it all on your own. You just can't, there's too many decisions. There's too many things. Like someone's got to be, someone has to own marketing. Someone has to own sales. Someone has to own customer support. Someone has to own product development. Someone has to own, even the boring stuff like payroll, HR, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Now you can't get that all at once. Uh, so lucky for you, that's your job as founder until you can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was talking to another founder yesterday and he, we, we were just talking about, you know, distribution strategies, but you know, I think, you know, if we're talking specifically about, um, you know, any makers and people bootstrapping is, you need to focus on low cost marketing strategies to really win. You're never going to win against, let's say you're competing against like, I don't know, some VC back company, you know, they're going to yeah. be spending a lot on 
you know, paid marketing. They're going to have a, a huge content team, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so you're at a disadvantage. So if you even do spin up some paid campaigns, you're going to mm-hmm. be paying, you know, uh, your, your, your LTV to CAC ratio is going to be probably negative because these larger companies can afford yeah. that longer customer yeah. payback yeah. period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for those that don't understand, uh, maybe those, what I just said, um, hire VP of finance when you, when you get a chance. Um, but yeah. at one point your business becomes, you know, basically a giant mathematical spreadsheet. So, yeah. uh, to kind of pull that back a little bit, it, what I would recommend doing is really model out your growth. So how many website visitors do you get? And then how many of those website visitors convert into free trials and how many of those free trials convert into paying mm-hmm. customers? How long do those paying customers stay? So now you have your lifetime value of your customer. And so from there, you can understand how much can I pay to acquire one customer? And then other Mm. things you want to optimize, especially if you're bootstrapping. And this is one metric that I really focused on um, was customer payback period. So for us to acquire a, uh, let's call them, you know, we call them resellers, which again, white label customers. um, It was about 300 bucks. And the product was 300 bucks a month in order to be a reseller of our product. And so we were profitable from that customer on like that day month. 28. Yeah. So the, eight, the faster you're able to um, accelerate that, um, the better. So I, I highly recommend in the early days to have, you know, annual subscriptions if you can. Because yeah. then you could just take that money, reinvest it back into growth. But in terms of like how I got the gears running or whatever um, at business apps was um, again, no marketing budget. So ads, all that paid stuff is out of the question. So that leaves you with Mm. brand and storytelling. And I leveraged that back then brand and storytelling was typically done through uh, media. So PR, um, you know, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, New York times, wall street journal, Inc magazine, um, we were covered in all of those magazines. And we leveraged a story um, which was like small business versus big business. I'm always a fan of, you know, David versus Goliath stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you we did were, that with Acquire too, right? And there was, I was following you and seeing, what is it like with TechCrunch? That you were like trying to yeah, you know, start this the, little fight the, the ironic part is, um, so business apps, you know, was, you know, a, a bootstrap business and we were featured in TechCrunch. yeah. 12, 12 times. I was a guest writer and everything. I knew all the old writers um, really well. They were great. And then when I launched um, MicroAcquire, now Acquire.com, they weren't covering bootstrap companies anymore. Like everyone was talking about these big financing rounds. And so that's where I found my my David versus Goliath. Mm. And it really was something I believed in. It was like, hey, like let's kind of like give a more realistic view of entrepreneurship. Because I also kind of grew up reading TechCrunch. Like I thought it was because mm. you get these stories way back in the day in like 2009, 2008, where it was like two people just made a prototype and stuff like that. And kind of, you felt a little, a little bit closer. Like they were just two steps ahead of you. And now a lot of the articles are like, they're like a hundred steps ahead of you. So it's yeah. not inspiring. Yes. It's more just news. And so it was just this interesting, you know, blog. I would literally wake up and read it first thing every day. Um, and then it's kind of shifted into more of a mainstream, um, you know, mm-hmm. glamorized view of entrepreneurship. So, yeah, that was my, 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 my David versus Goliath with MicroQuire to start, which was, you know, hey, you're not 
portraying a realistic example of entrepreneurship, in my opinion. Like, come on, let's yeah. let's, let's see if we can change this. And they end up, they ended up um, you know starting covering bootstrap startups, which I thought was cool. But mm-hmm. I guess you know um, if I had to kind of round out that thought, it's just you know stand for something, like really have like a message that people resonate with. I think um, another great example is. Uh, you know, Nike in terms of how mm. they think about customers. So Nike sells fucking shoes, shoes. Yeah. There's some technology. <laughs> I'm wearing Nikes right now. Um, uh, but you know what they do is they sell um, a goal. They sell a lifestyle. They sell, um, yeah. you know, a purpose. They celebrate athletes and like they're a commodity business. They actually do have some like pretty pretty nice, you know, soul tech or whatever, but, Mm. um, anyways, you can copy that, whatever. But my point is, is I think startups should think the same in terms of, you know, sell a goal, sell a lifestyle, sell, uh, a different viewpoint of the world. And then if you can find a tribe that, or a community of people that also agree with you, um, Mm. you know, that's a very, very powerful marketing strategy because people, Mm. it taps into the emotions of people and people buy with the emotional side of their brain. Mm-hmm. And and acquire. What's what what is it selling? Like, what was the idea? Was it like okay, bootstrap matters? Like, it was was that the goal? Uh, it was really just. A, that's a great question. It was um just a reflection of kind of my personal story, which was, you know, I I built, <laughs> sold a a SaaS business, and it wasn't for a hundred million dollars. Like, you know, it was just a bootstrap business um it wasn't the acquisition wasn't featured in the wall street journal no one gave a shit um but it was completely life-changing for me so i think yeah you know to summarize what acquire stands for to me um is you don't have to build a billion dollar company to be successful as an entrepreneur i think oh yeah that's all people hear about in the headlines in terms of you know what startups are doing well and well, if you got to like 10 million revenue, well, that's cute. It's like, well, actually, that's like a really, that's a huge accomplishment. You should be proud of yourself, especially if you out there without investors. Oh, yeah. um, it and definitely, so I think just mm-hmm. that was kind of the narrative that I I still believe to this day. Um, and it ties, ties up well to your story, right? Like, you know, as a poorer kid looking to your rich friends and say like, they have it all and... Like, do you see bootstrappers a little bit? Like, uh, do you identify yourself as bootstrapper? Like, when you see, you know, okay, these are small people. They just want to build their little product, and they are being overshadowed by these huge, you know, companies. Uh, is there some connection with your uh, childhood? Ah, uh, I mean, maybe. Uh, maybe it's I- being a little bit too far fetched, but I don't know I saw this. Well, connection. no, I see where you I mean. You know, as a bootstrapper, you're an underdog, you know? Yeah. Um, and I love underdogs. I love underdog stories. I love people who are, you know, yeah. you know, trying to build against someone that, like, taking down a big incumbent or, you yeah. know, competing with someone with more resources. I think it's just badass. Um, yeah. So. Um, there is a connection yeah. a little bit, I guess. Yeah, I'd the say there's a level. connection, but probably not a huge one. But I mean, that's what bootstrapping mm-hmm. is all about. I mean, you gotta, you don't, you can't spend your way out of problems. You gotta be like creative, and it builds this like you know yeah, again exactly. this mental muscle of you know resourcefulness. And I think those are mm-hmm. just key traits of you know successful mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. Yeah. When 
you said uh, one of the things that you mentioned as a, a trick to go from, you know, a startup or starting business to a, a thriving one was to start delegating and creating a team. However, we see a lot of, you know, big indie makers, you know, Peter Levels, Tony Dean, uh, they do things by themselves. They try, okay, the least that, that they can hire, the better. You know, sometimes they hire one freelancer, something like this, but they try to keep it mostly to themselves and they seem to, to do really, really well. How do you see this? The fact that they don't want to grow so much, they want to keep it, you know, with two, three people maximum. I think it's badass and I think it's super impressive too. I think it just kind of, you know, really brings home like the point of like you can be successful in 20,000 different ways. There's no one like framework or pathway to be successful or to build a successful business. Um, I, I do believe that, you know, I think those individuals probably could go farther with the team. But man, they're like living the dream. They like, you right. know, have high profit margins. They live in like, don't they live in like different countries and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So what they're doing mm -hmm. is they're defining self, success themselves. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's a super cheesy quote, but it's so true. I think, again, going back to, you know, um, you know, how to succeed in entrepreneurship, it's just, it's just figure out a way to, you know, uh, play the game in a way that you love. So right. I'm more of a, a team person and I love building teams. I love working with teams. Um, but are they required to be successful? No, there's so many examples mm. of that. And I think it's awesome. Right. You know, I've been, I've talked with, with them and I've talked with Tony Dean multiple times and I asked him exactly this, like, wh what is your goal? You know, and one thing is kind of common among a lot of uh, indie makers, which is they, they want the freedom. Uh, so they want the possibility to do whatever they want, to follow, to create new projects. But at the same time, they also want to conquer the world. There's always this part, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think you always have this part. Like, I want to conquer the world. I want to do something bigger. I want to beat the VCs, right? Because I feel the same. You know, there's a lot of post-squeeze-like competitors. They are also VC-backed. I think I want to conquer them. At the same time, I want to, I like my lifestyle now. So if that's what we want. Like, and I think we are still figuring out a lot of how can how can we run bootstrap businesses. Um, I guess the best way would be okay. Let's start delegating, and and if that's the the, the next step, uh, how should we start? How should we start delegating? Should we hire someone to basically do tasks that we don't want to do? Should we hire someone to do tasks that we don't know how to do? What should be our first hire? Um, I think it depends on your personal strengths. Like for me, my first hire was, um, just helping out with just first it was, uh, obviously engineering cause I, I'm not an engineer. And then it was someone to just help with sales cause I, I couldn't handle all sales, but I still led sales in terms of, you know, the tracking, mm -hmm. the management, the training. Um, and then I hired for customer support. Uh, and then, you know, you start adding on the nice to haves, which are really needed to have, but, you know, head of marketing, uh, and then you get a component of operations that's usually needed within the company. Uh, so it, it, it just depends. I would say, you know, write down the stuff that, you know, you're really good at and the stuff that you're really bad at. You're mm -hmm. going to have to do the stuff you're really bad at too. Like you're going to have to do sales. You're going to have to do marketing. Um, but what that does is it's an exercise that can help you operate, um, in what they call your zone of genius. 
So if you're mm-hmm. really good at social marketing and engineering or something like that, um, like most indie hackers that I've seen are successful are, you know, you can stay within that realm, but maybe you hate formal marketing where, you know, you're doing some boring stuff like content marketing or um, going on podcasts or, uh, you know, whatever, maybe a paid ad spend or something like that or partnerships, uh, hire someone for that, but you still need to understand the role. So when you're bootstrapping, yeah. you cannot afford a mishire. A big mishire is a huge waste of resources that you just don't have. And so you need every hire to be creative in, ter- in terms of the revenue they deliver back to your business. And the biggest way uh, to de-risk that hire is to be in their shoes. So what I mean by that is you need to be that marketer for a little bit. You need to do all the stuff that you may not like doing. So you understand kind of what works, what's not working, and then you hire someone with the strengths in the areas of marketing that are mm. working. And then you're able to right. onboard that person a lot more. The 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 number one thing you don't want to do when you first start delegating is, let's say you have a sales problem, but you don't know how to sell at all. And so you just hire this you know, sales lady or guy that has a great mm. sales resume, and you just put them in a seat and you say, hey, go sell my product. That fails like 99 point, basically 100% of the time. <laughs> you have to be able to, you know, sell your product if you're going to, you know, move into like a sales motion within right. your business. Okay. So I guess, you know, when you say, you know, what to delegate first, um, you know, I would say the things that are holding you back the most and the things that you um, dislike doing the most. So you can spend your time on high, more high impact um, items within the business, specifically ones that only you, the founder can do, or only you as CEO can do. And then you can, um, you know, hire people that are better at the roles that you're not, um, you know, that great at. Mm -hmm. I guess for engineering is a bit different, right? Because there's no way for you to try to be an engineer for a little bit. Or is there? <laughs> for for me, no. Uh, right, but, I used, but you have I, to hire one, right? Yeah. So uh, crazy story, but I hired my first um, engineer off. So before business apps, I had a, a job board um, that connected mobile developers with businesses. Mm-hmm. So I had like a big insight into who was good and who like who had the best ratings. So I sold that job board and I hired that like a top mobile developer from the job board. So I had a little bit of, because I saw him do some work and I saw like his reviews and stuff like that. Um, And then I ended up hiring um, the majority of our engineering team off just straight up Upwork. I hired this guy named, um, I still remember his name, Raymond Chester. Uh, (laughs) He was an individual in China. Um, We never really, we only spoke like on Skype and stuff. And then I ended up hiring like 10 of his friends because I didn't know how to also <laughs> assess the talent yeah. of other engineers. Mm-hmm. So I just said, hey, can he was basically the CTO for a long time. Yeah, I guess there's always a little bit of trust uh, that you need to have. But that's something that I always get as well, that uh, recommendations are always the best way, right? So you might not know anything about engineering, but you have a friend that you really trust that knows about engineering and maybe he or she can, you know, recommend you someone and that's I guess that will reduce the chances of failure yeah I mean today you know like I know a little bit more in terms of you know right. hiring engineers but if that's where you're where you're at I mean again 
you know, taking that basketball and just shooting it, you know, you might have some bad hires, but yeah. that's your only options. Like, you know, yeah, there's no other the, way. That's what you got to do. I guess there's one more option that uh, a lot of uh, founders can can have, and that's kind of a bridge for for the other topic I want to speak about, which is to sell it, right? To sell their business, and I've I never thought that was even a possibility. Um, Sometimes I've seen people selling businesses that were pre-revenue. They were making no money and they were able to sell it. And I thought, okay, that's cool. I always thought that if you were not able to make money, then, well, you just lost it. You just have to start something new. But I've met a lot of people that they were able to sell it. Of course, not for a lot, but, you know, some money, which is good, at least to justify to your friends and family that, you know, it wasn't all for in vain. Um, and that's something that the topic that I want to explore because that's a possibility for uh, a lot of makers. And I guess the first question that immediately comes to my head is how to evaluate your business? Because a lot of people say, yeah, I just, you know, 10x it or 5x it. Is it that simple to just get your ARR, multiply it by five and, and go sell it? Or are there like other, you know, <laughs> no. other things involved? <laughs> no, uh, you know, evaluations are, they're, they're kind of a moving target. One of my, one of my favorite quotes and, you know, this is probably how I think most about valuations is your business is worth what someone will pay for it. Just simple as right. that. Um, and if you go to 10 different valuation, quote unquote experts, mm. you're going to get 10 different, you know, valuations. So it's specifically if you're pre-revenue. Pre-revenue, we kind of say it's like the wild, wild west on Acquire.com because <laughs> like sometimes people build like some really novel technology. And if you just compare that to something else based on financial multiples. Um, so it also, it also depends on the buyer. So you have financial buyers and financial buyers will purchase companies in a, in a very specific mandate. It's usually something like they will not go over, you know, one to three times revenue. And they're typically looking for profitable businesses that fits within this box. And it's, you know, four to six times, you know, EBITDA or something like that. And they mm. will not go outside of that. And the reason is, is their whole model as a private equity firm or um, a financial buyer, their goal is to see a return on that investment. So you kind of need to put your buyer's hat on. So I think, right. you know, the biggest mistake founders make when valuing their business is they don't think about how the buyer is going to value the business and how can they articulate, you know, a rational valuation to the buyer. Like, how did you get to that 5X number? How did you get to that 10X number? And if it's just like, oh, well, I saw um, Bloom was acquired for 10X or something like that, that is right. the worst way to... <laughs> value your business because well Loom is doing hundreds of millions of dollars and it was growing you know really fast year over year and they sold to a strategic buyer your business is subscale not growing you know so there's so many different like variables like that but using you know outsized outlier returns to justify valuation is mm. um, a great way to just kind of show buyers you're not serious and also putting your buyer hat on again is you know, most buyers are looking at hundreds of businesses per day. So if you're priced even just a little outside of reality, you're missing right. out on a ton of different buyer um, mm. potential interest. Right. So I guess, um, you know, the best way to, you know, um, you know, think about valuations is we recently did a webinar on valuations where I talk about, 
you know, how to, how to get to a higher valuation, like how to maximize your valuation. And the real way to do that is you want to bring as many buyers to the table as possible. So sometimes that can mean pricing your startup initially lower than what you might think. But like that number that's in most founders head at like 10 X, Mm-hmm. That ain't real, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> that is wanted, never real. So that, it, that, that it, will yeah, never happen. No, I used to think 10x was, yeah, just take revenue and multiply by 10. So that super simple. <laughs> um, but what you want to do? There's a saying: if you have one buyer, you have no buyers because you have no leverage. So if you're just mm-hmm. waiting for a buyer to come acquire you, that rarely works and is a dumb strategy, in my opinion, um, because they could, they'll just sit and watch and you know so bring a bunch of buyers to the table and then have a realistic valuation where, you know, it gets them interested. It fits within kind of their, you know, how they would value to startups that are um, like yours. Um, and these are all things that we help with at acquire.com. Mm-hmm. And then what you're able to do is if you get multiple offers, you run a good acquisition process. That's when you can bump up to um, higher multiples because you have leverage. Yeah. You're able to say, Hey, buyer who came in at three X, like, you can get to, you know, 4.5 X, um, you know, we have a deal and you can kind of like, that's how you run a competitive process is you need to have, um, leverage. And then you also have, need to have multiple buyers to have that leverage to push the price up. And then also one thing that I think a lot of founders don't think about too, is if you do sell for like six, seven, eight, nine, 10 X, you, that comes with a baggage of terms to de-risk the acquisition right. for the buyer, such as an earnout. Um, usually it's some stock component um, because it's, it's such a, a high valuation and with, with public companies trading at six X or AR, um, you know, you're going to get basically front loaded, like this thing better perform really well post acquisition. Right. Um, so they won't just give you the money and say, okay, thank you so much. Bye bye. They'll be like, okay, you'll get this percentage of the money now. And then there's goals that you need that the, you know, the company needs to reach, maybe you need to stay for a year or two. There'll be a bunch of requirements that, you know, someone will need to follow to get a 10 X valuation. Is that it? Uh, typically. Yeah. Usually mm-hmm. four years is, is if four you're years. getting, if you're getting like a 10 X valuation. Yeah. Like those guys at Loom, like they're going to go work at Alaskan for four years for sure. Whoa. Which is a lot of times things that, you know, founders, they don't want that. Right. At least for me, I just want to be my own boss, right? And in, suddenly I still sell my company and then I need to, you know, become someone else's employee. Uh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, um, using the Loom example, I mean, I'd take that. Like, you know, like go work somewhere for, um, really? you know, a billion. Yeah. For, I mean, you know, I got, you know, I got a family. Um, right. I always say fe- feed your family, not your ego. Um, but, with my so when business apps was acquired, um, you know, we had other buyers, you know, interested and we went with a pure financial buyer. And the reason for that is another part of acquisitions that a lot of founders don't, and we're kind of touching on it now is, is the terms. So the terms that I went after and I demanded from, you know, a P firm was because most, most strategic buyers won't agree to these terms. Um, they will provide a higher valuation, but again, the higher valuation is justified by earn out. You got to come over, you got to, you know, hit these targets, blah, blah, blah. Here's some stock too, and invest over four years. I wanted a clean break. I wanted all cash on close. 
I wanted a stock purchase. I wanted them to purchase. We had two million cash on hand. I wanted them to purchase that um, for tax purposes. Uh, and I wanted quick due diligence. And yeah, and private equity. If you are able to again bring multiple buyers to the table, both strategic and financial, you can negotiate terms like that. Mm-hmm. And you might not get the highest valuation for terms like that, but what you're really giving up is the way I thought about it was. Okay, I can maybe push the price up like to 20, 30, 40% maybe, which is significant. But what I'm really like, I'm actually paying for that with my time. I just want to like sell this business, move on. And since selling my first startup, you know, I've, um, I, I built a, like a crypto protocol company, which was acquired, um, got to do a bunch of, you know, fun traveling and consulting and then uh, started a acquire.com so mm. i just wanted to get out and build something yeah. new i could i i would quit day one if i had to go to a bigger <laughs> company it's it's very interesting yeah yeah i think you know being an entrepreneur is not about being connected to one product right this i think it's a lifestyle you know it's it's building multiple things and and what you just mentioned so basically which is this is really interesting because in most of other businesses let's say you want to buy a car a house whatever you start with a higher valuation and then you eventually go down. You know, we are now you know, trying to acquire a house or flat. And it's like this, you know, you see, you go to these websites and you, the listings are quite high. And then you go, okay, I'll give you this. And they're like, okay, I take it. And sometimes it's 30, 30K less or something like this. Uh, and what you're telling me, it's, it's different for companies. So with companies, you you kind of write down what, what are your requirements. You say like, I want this, I want money. I want to immediately exit, whatever. And then you you start with a lower you lowball your your business and you see okay let's bring people let's let's bring the, the let's attract the sharks and then based on this you start increasing the value right yeah <laughs> yeah the thing i think a lot of founders also don't understand is you're selling your business you're selling it so a big part of it's sales you got to talk to people you got to figure out right. what's like most important to them is it the product? Is it the revenue? Are they a strategic buyer? Are they a financial buyer? Mm. How are they going to fund it? Um, how mm. important is a transition plan? How aligned are you on you know the future of the company? Mm. Um, are you flexible on terms? Like getting mm. buyers like interested because again they're just kind of especially using Acquire.com as you know an example. Like we have thousands of listings, you know thousands of listings where some are priced you know low, some are priced really high, and we have tons of data right. on like basically the best way to run a process. And it is typically to price on the lower end. And then what you do is you run a really good process where you bring a lot of buyers to the table, get a lot of them interested, and then what you do is you also control the process. And what I mean by that is you provide something called a deal schedule. And so a deal schedule basically puts time frames around okay, this is the last day for initial briefing calls, which is just like a first introductory call. And then I need uh, verbal offers by, you know, usually two to three weeks after that because there's usually some due diligence in between depending on the deal size. And then I need formal offers by this date. And what you're doing is you're you're creating urgency amongst buyers so they don't just right. kind of sit back. And so I think there's also a misconception yeah. with founders that you just price it here and then someone just goes, here you go. And then you're like, thanks. So yeah. you have to sell That's the business. You have thought. to get on multiple calls with buyers. Yeah. You have to really stress like well, the value of the business. You have to point out also what's wrong with it because 
you know, bad, bad things don't kill acquisitions, but surprises do. Right. Um, and these are all things that we help with at acquire.com because it's confusing mm-hmm. as hell. I sold my first business. And I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big part of me starting acquire.com because I felt that founders were at such a dis, um, information um, disadvantage when speaking yeah. with huge private equity firms and like, how do you like, what is due diligence? How do I survive this? Um, mm. What are the big red flags to make a deal blow up? Cause the last thing you want to do is sign an LOI tell your whole team that you're getting acquired mm. and then it falls through for some reason. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's yeah. ways to increase the chances of close. I, I could go on yeah. for days on this topic, yeah. but that's, that's very interesting. It's a, you know, a whole world uh, that we need to learn about. So tell me about the, the buyers, like what do they want? I know that there are strategical buyers. There's like in general, like why are people looking to buy bootstrap businesses? The short answer is typically the, the cap table is cleaner, so there's no um, approvals needed from investors. So once you raise venture capital, you'll typically have a series of approvals needed. So it can be, and if you raise it like some crazy valuation, the business just isn't worth that. And so it makes it more difficult to bring, you know, everybody together and be in agreement. Um, mm. Unless you're growing like crazy and you get a strategic buyer or you're on the other end and things are just going bad and it's kind of like, we'll take whatever offer we can get. So bootstrap businesses have, you know, great attributes that every buyer loves, which is, you know, number one, great, typically niche products. Um, two, mm-hmm. they're usually profitable. Uh, mm-hmm. Three, they're very capital efficient. Um, and that's, those, those are probably the main three. I mean, and right. then uh, you're able to make a decision on, um, selling the business uh, much easier because it's just, it's your business. It's a, you can just say yes or no. Yeah. So in the case of business apps, my, my company as an example, um, I didn't have any, you know, exit blocking rights or anything like that. Um, and you know, you're able to sell a business for, you know, one, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty million dollars, $20 And it's a huge success and venture. That's unfortunately like a, Wah, wah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's True. crazy. Like, if you, if know, you sell that, something that, for a million as a bootstrapper, it's crazy. Like you build something that now was sold by a million because most of the money will also go to the solo fund or something like this. And those are uh, the people that inspire me. You know, yeah. they really are. Like, I think, it, well, I think yeah. it's, 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 it's amazing. I think even like 10, 20, 50, whatever. Like if you live in, you know, other countries and you sell for 25 K or 50 K and we've had situations like this, they sell for like a quarter million or something like that. Um, that's life changing in another country. Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, like for a lot of families, that's life changing. You know, it's maybe you can all buy a house or, or something like this with with this with this money. It's crazy. And sometimes yeah. you build it in a year, <laughs> which is absurd. And, you know. And, and, uh, and if I can get another point in too of just like kind of you know what I believe in why Acquire.com is is so important to just a startup ecosystem is. I think everybody, again, is drawn to such extremes in terms of what success really is. Like, like, why do you want money? Like, what do you want to do with it? Like, yeah. do you want to buy a big house? Do you want to buy a bunch of cars and stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, but what money, in my opinion, the best part of it is the ability to just not have to be stressed out all the time. Yeah. So you don't need a big house. You don't need like a super yeah. fast car. You don't need... A billion, like, what are you going to do with a billion dollars if you, like, <laughs> somehow get the way, like, what? 
Uh, I mean, it'd be yeah. cool. I hope one day I experience maybe. Um, but you know, I think there's just such a skewed perception of what success, um, and entrepreneurship is. And really, I just think it's, you know, just the ability to, you know, control your time, um, financial stability, mm-hmm. yeah. um, not having to have some job you hate. I think that's success in entrepreneurship. Yeah. And we've just been drawn to, you know, it's billions or bust. And, you know, yeah. at Acquire.com, we we get to see this little tail end of just, you know, people building these really simple businesses, almost to the point where it makes me question, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Like, these people are really, like, doing it right. And they're selling businesses for, like, one, two, three, four, five million, or 500K or 50K. And it's super mm-hmm. meaningful to them. And I think yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what I love about bootstrapping is the fact that uh, our priority mostly is freedom and is our well-being and then growth, which which is like normally for VC-backed companies, the opposite. It's like growth and then the well-being. Uh, so that's something that I really appreciate about, you know, bootstrapping. And that's why I more and more I'm I'm in love with this way of doing business and this way of entrepreneurship. Um, so, so, so the buyers, I understand now why would they you know, invest in a bootstrap business, you know, it's basically are simpler, easier to manage. They are, uh, they have less expenses and everything, but then what do they do with these businesses? Like, do they try to plug it in, in their, you know, distribution channels and make more money out of it? Do they use it for, you know, raise whatever, like try a new market, try new technology. Like why do buyers want to acquire business in general? Yeah. So financial buyers are pretty simple. Cash flow. They don't care okay. what your business does. Like they just if it's profitable, churn is low, that that recurring revenue is reliable, uh, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna have a ton of buyers. Immense of like you'll have like two hundred NDAs on Aguardo.com if you price correctly and you have a profitable SaaS business. Um, strategic buyers are typically looking for a product that can help or a team. They can help them enter a market they may be falling mm. behind in uh, or where they just see huge opportunity and they want to get, uh, again, a head start. So, or they just want to add, you know, this additional product to their product suite because they have similar customers that would buy, buy this product. So cross-selling. So it, it really kind of falls into those two buckets. Financial buyers are typically the most mm. common. And the reason financial buyers are the most common is because all they do all day is buy companies. Like the private equity firm that bought my company acquires a multi-million dollar startup every single week. Every week. Really? Yes. Every week. They're a multi-billion dollar firm, ESW Capital, and they acquire startups every week. And so when you're in the business of buying businesses... And what do they do with them? So they basically, they have like a small team that then will take over... And just, you know, keep that, you know, recurrent MRR. Yeah, it depends on the revenue. firm. Um, some will cross-sell products. So they'll basically, like Constellation Software is probably a good example where they just buy really, really niche vertical mm. SaaS, you know, like CRM for dentists. That makes two million a year, like three, four, something like that. They love businesses like that. And then you also have um, Andrew Wilkinson's firm, um, Tiny Capital. He, his model is more of a private equity, like holding co model. Um, I don't have like the exact details on it, but um, he just buys and holds, you know, he just buys <laughs> really simple, profitable businesses and, and holds them. 
Um, and then it needs, have, a team. it needs a team to somehow maintain it, make sure it works, do some user support, I guess. Yeah, right? so typically, you know, multiples get and valuations increase substantially once your business is at scale. What I mean by that is, you know, you're you're creating enough profit or generating enough profit to where the new owner of the business can use the profitability of what the business is generating to hire a new operator if the founder is going to leave. That's smart. That's a very interesting, you know, investment. You know, a lot of people say, going back to the book, uh, the Rich That Poor Dad, they say like, yeah, buy a house, buy a flat, rent it out. That's the best way to get, you know, some nice passive or close to passive income. But this is another way, you know, something that is somehow, it's certain, it's already making money uh, and you can just hire someone to maintain it with the, with the money it's generating and then the rest, it's, you know, it's an asset. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like there's... Um a simple way analogy to think about it. You know, most startup founders are going after like a big, big pile of cash. You know what I mean? Like they're trying to get that exit, like where they have all the money, all one, all of a sudden you're broke and it's like, boop, you know, yeah. you got a bunch of money now. Um, <laughs> you know, financial buyers specifically, they're creating a, a, a river of cash flow. So they're buying mm-hmm. a bunch of different businesses where they're, they're, their investment thesis is basically to get a return on that investment over typically three to five years, depending on if they're able to grow the business or they're just maintaining the business. And they're just creating a river of cash that comes in every month from all the profitable businesses. So there's a lot of analogies um, to this strategy that I always think um, that are comparable to real estate where you have a Mm. bunch of condos and people are paying you rent every month. And that money is kind of guaranteed. Yeah. I think it's probably a little bit more risky with software because you can get yeah, disrupted probably. and stuff all the time. But yeah. um, that's that's the thought process. And there's been some very, very successful um, organizations, people that have been doing, even on the small yeah. scale too. On a small scale, meaning like buying companies generating 50K a year in revenue or profitability right. or 20K and rolling up. And this is where kind of micro private equity has emerged. Mm-hmm. And that's been really yeah. fun to watch as well. And even other cool. entrepreneurs too. Like I've seen a lot of indie hackers quote unquote, buying. Quote, yeah, I feel I feel like indie hackers is like this new term I've been hearing. I I'm not I'm not hip with, with the terms. <laughs> I thought it was just bootstrappers. Um, it's the same. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Anyways, um, I've seen a lot of you know bootstrappers, indie hackers also buy products, and then you know focus on those, and then they're they're focusing on you know sales, marketing, distribution. And so that could be an opportunity for other, you know, small developers or just entrepreneurs. They don't have a fund, they don't have an yeah. idea, but they know marketing sales and maybe they have some sort of audience or podcast or some some way to get in front of customers. Okay, let's let's take a quick example. So let's say PodSqueeze. PodSqueeze is generating 150k MRR, uh, ARR and it's in the podcasting area and let's say that we want to consider selling it. What should be like, what, what do you think people would ask? What do you think could be like our main pod squeeze, by the way, is a software for podcasters, like to help using AI to repurpose their content and so on. Uh, I don't know if it was your company, of course, listing in, in acquire.com would be, I guess your first step. But besides that, like what, what would you do? Like, what could I expect? What what's the profitability margin? It's about eighty percent. Eighty percent. So, 
we're thinking like you know 130k a year is is profit um yeah i mean i would i would i would list that um you know probably at like probably like 6x um net profit which would bring you to not very good at math. I don't know, like eight hundred thousand yeah, right. or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then from there, um, start getting feedback from buyers. So you go live on acquire.com and typically you'll see a rush of buyers coming in. And I always say you want to treat every buyer like they're the buyer until mm-hmm. they're not. There's this weird thing where people are like, "Oh, I don't want people stealing like my idea and stuff." And I, my view on that is, if if someone could just like you know, learn a little bit about a little bit about your business and then copy you and then out execute you and beat you. Like that's, you don't have a defensible business. Um, so, you know, focus on defensibility, um, but be open with buyers. Like don't be like a closed book and like hide, you know, obviously don't give away like, you know, your, your most like your code access, your code base or something like that. But you need to be open with buyers. And I guess you want to go in with the, thought process of your job is to de-risk the acquisition for Mm. the buyer. And so that comes in a few parts. One is being responsive. So I say being responsive because when you're in a sales process, the last thing a buyer wants to do is deal with someone that takes like a week for questions, Mm. you know, isn't is late to calls and doesn't have their stuff together because that's what due diligence is going to be like. So I put as a buyer, I'm also investing a ton of my time, legal resources. You know, I'm going to be due diligencing, you know, um, the code base with you. Like we're going on a journey. Like there's a saying, it's kind of like a reverse, it's like a reverse (laughs) marriage. It's like you, you know, you, 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 you you get married and then you, the, the plan is to get divorced and that's when you, Another terrible analogy, <laughs> but um, so you want to be, you know, like open to hearing buyers out. Like, hey, how would you value this? Like, I know I'm here, but like, I'm open to entertaining, you know, all offers. Like, um, you know, we'll consider mm-hmm. it. And I've really enjoyed my conversation with you. And then, you know, always try to get another call. Say, hey, would it make sense, you know, to have another call a week from now? Let you kind of think about this. Go through the additional materials. And then you take the call and you just move it over a week. It's called book a meeting from a meeting. Yeah, so it's yeah. we do in sales. So you keep that conversation going so you can keep momentum with the buyer. And you do this with every buyer that you speak to. And then um, even before you go live, I skipped this part, is preparation. So have like a clean P&L. Have like a list of common questions available. Have like marketing materials Record like a like a Loom video of yourself introducing, like, hey, this is Tiago, and you know, I'm looking to sell this right. business. Here's kind of like the awesome stuff about it. Here's some things that we've tried that haven't worked. This is why we're selling it. Looking forward to speaking with you. Just like a brief introduction video that you can send to people in a message, which really will increase your, uh, you know, people sign yeah. NDAs, but not all of them will hop on a call. Right. So it's just like a numbers game, but you need to be prepared and you need to be direct and mm-hmm. you need to sell the business. And if you do all those things correctly, buyers get interested. They see that you're you know, serious about selling the business at a reasonable price. You start to get offers. And there you can negotiate up based on terms, evaluation, whichever mm-hmm. is most important for you. And then you go through the fun part yeah. of due diligence, which is actually kind of like yeah, hell. Um, it's, it's like telling your your best friend, everything you've done bad <laughs> in life. Um, 
and then hopefully if you do all that correctly you so you get you get acquired it's cool and i'm i'm surprised with the 6x uh um evaluation i would assume that we would have to start a bit lower you know three four something like this uh for a company like potsuis but of course that i didn't give you enough information to to yeah without you know there's things other like churn you yeah, know growth yeah. rate um you know if those numbers are high you can definitely command a higher multiple um so those things can definitely be factored into but i think the biggest misconception that a lot of founders have is you know buyers are valuing you on revenue when they're really valuing you on your profitability margin mm. So that's the key number is how profitable is your business? Because if your business is, say, at break even or if it's losing money, it's really hard mm. to sell that business. You need to tell like a growth story or ideally you should make cuts yeah. and get it to profitability before bringing it to market. If it's at break even, the first thing a buyer is going to do when they buy the business is they're going to find a way to make it profitable right. so they can make it more capital efficient and start reallocating resources to areas that they feel will you know, put the business on a better trajectory. So um, profit, and this is a big shift. So in 2011, we were seeing businesses sell for wild multiples. It was kind of, it was super fun in those <laughs> days. Um, but the name of the game today is, you know, buyers are looking for, you know, profitability and capital efficiency over everything. So um, so the 80% yeah, that's, number that's probably where I, is good. It's a good number. 80% profitability is good. It's it's really good. The only sort of, you know, also understanding, you know, red flags right. for buyers or things that might scare away buyers is, sure. you know, you're at that 80% margin because you don't have a, a lot of team members. So if your whole team leaves, they're going to have to hire people back and that's going to drag that profitability margin right. down. Yeah. So addressing those things and talking about that, like, are you going to still be involved in the business? Mm. Who's going to be running it? Because um, it's really, really difficult to, you know, buy a business with, essentially zero people coming on for at mm -hmm. least a transition period of three to mm -hmm. six months. Got it. Yeah. Very interesting. I feel that I've learned a lot about, you know, this new world of selling a, a business. And as, as a last question, uh, also because I kind of forgot to ask you this, but I think it's really interesting. Um, you are a branding guy, you know, you've done amazing things with, uh, you know, with the David and Goliath, you know, going against TechCrunch and as well, what you've done with um, the guy from Sil from Silicon Valley, the tri Tres Comas. Uh, That's, uh, yeah, Ross Evans. Sorry. Um, that was super fun. I was like always <laughs> watching those videos. This is really cool. But I, at the same time, it's probably a big investment, you know, to, to get these high personalities to do a cameo. And my question, and that's also like where my co-founder and I are always discussing, which is like, how can you measure branding, right? So it's really easy to measure a, a marketing act when you get clients, because you can see, okay, we did this, we got this amount of clients, so this is our return on investment. But when you do something branding-wise, like creating a story like the David and Goliath you did, or get you know influencers to do cameos and stuff like that, or going to conferences... You know, how do you measure this? How do you measure the branding? Do you have like a technique, a framework to do that? I mean, there is one way to actually kind of get close to it, which is if you uh, track down how many people uh, Google search your company name. Okay. So if you like, we used to measure, you know, the growth of people searching microquire. Uh, so that's one way. But I mean, word of mouth is the best form of marketing. So you're bringing up campaigns that 
I don't know, uh, like direct, you know, ROI attribution, but you remember them. Mm. And we haven't put out a Russ Hannon video in over yeah. a year. It's true. That's true. So, so how like do you that, measure you know, this? If you can you know, really... like, it's true. It works. It works. But again, how can you justify this? How, how do you know how much to invest in this kind of videos, this kind of, you know, marketing? If, uh, if you cannot like objectively measure the, the impact that this has in your business. I don't think everything needs to be completely measured, especially in marketing. You know, in my opinion, the best marketing is a marketing that doesn't feel like marketing. Mm. Like those Russ Hanneman videos are marketing videos, but they aren't, they don't feel like it. Like you watch them, they're funny. They're kind yeah. of um, crude in a way, you know, there's some swear words yeah. in there, you know, they're, um, but they're, they, they evoke an emotion out of a person, whether that's laughter or they educate them. Um, you know, you could, there's a ton of different ways to think about this too, is also just your time too. So how do you justify your time on something? Like, how do you justify this? And I think especially in the early days of a startup, you know, the more you try to justify, like, I mean, there are some like clear areas you should have, like clear ROI, like specifically Google Mm. ad spend, Facebook ads, stuff like that. You should know how many, how much am I, how much am I spending? How many customers am I getting back? Are these customers staying? Is this a profitable channel? But for some things like social or product announcements or, you know, I always view that your biggest competitor is customer attention. Mm. And so there's thousands of startups out there today. And there's probably, you know, two, three startups that kind of do the same thing that your startup does. I just have to assume. It's many. Same with mine. But I don't, (laughs) yeah, but I don't view them as competitors. I view um, really just customer attention as today's biggest competitor because there's so much noise in the world. So if you're able to break out and stand out, your paid campaigns will also perform better. Um, You'll see a lot more just organic, you know, more organic searches of your brand also increase your um, SEO Mm. positions as well. So it's kind of like a a highly connected, you know, marketing strategy, but yeah, it it is really hard to have a definitive sort of, we paid this, for this sort of video or this campaign and it delivered X, Y, Z we'll have ballpark, but it's really hard with, with brand. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the end of the day, I think the most powerful thing with a brand is, you know, getting people to trust your business and want to do business with you yes. because you made them feel something. You made them laugh. You made, you educated them. You taught them something. And it's super hard um, to measure. And those things are just really hard exactly. to measure. Yeah. yeah. They're hard to measure. But how do you decide and how much can you spend in that? How do you decide? How much can you spend in a Russ Hannum? Like, how do you decide? Good old Russ. Well, when I when I first used him, he was five hundred bucks, and then uh, he raised his rates to like one thousand to two thousand. Because I think other people started using him. And by our last video we did with him was, um, I think I think like five thousand dollars. And at that point, we were kind of like, I think this is getting a little too pricey. <laughs> but um, why why love, do you, why, Russ, why do you but, decide it? Like, is it it just feels like it's too much? Is it? Well, I also just kind of felt like, well, number one, he's off Cameo, so we can't use him even if we wanted to. I think, I hope he's got some new show coming out. Um, but also after a certain time, you know, I feel you you always want to be reinventing your marketing mm. strategy. You always want to be thinking of the new playbook. So what I saw was other startups starting to use Russ right. Hanneman. And then I go, okay, now let's start shifting over to, have you seen like the um, New York Times, like billboards that we use? Uh, no, not yet. 
so we found like a tricky way to um, basically, if you tweet about an acquisition or um, we'll put you up on a billboard ah, in Times yes, Square. I've seen it. Yes. And, it yeah. And so that will cost, and people will be like, dude, you're like wasting all this money, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, we're not. What we do is we basically um, work with um, an agency that can get an hour or like, let's say a 30 minute mm-hmm. slot on that billboard. And then we rotate like 50 tweets in that 30 minutes and then we just snap pictures. Yeah. And so the real exactly. value isn't people walking around New York. People walking around New York are just like, what the hell is yeah. that? I don't know. They have no idea. <laughs> um, but we take the picture, we take the picture and then the total cost for 30 tweets. And then that goes back to kind of like, you know, we want to celebrate acquisitions yeah. regardless of the size. And so we're able to do that in these fun, creative ways. And that's what gets people talking about your brand is when you're marketing in ways that doesn't feel like marketing, you go, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like, and you share it. And then when someone shares it, you know, who knows where it's going to go, but that's, those are my favorite marketing strategies is ones that you're not copying someone else's playbook because everyone's using it. And the more people, there's a saying marketers ruin everything. Cause you <laughs> do like, you know, rest in peace, cold email. Um, well, or just you know LinkedIn yeah. LinkedIn DM they still work. Oh, uh, we were we had a lot back of success day, with it. To be honest. <laughs> oh well, dude, back back in the day, we would load up um, like sales loft with you know cold emails to out to agencies. Response rate was like fifty percent, fifty percent because people yeah, hadn't yeah, caught yeah. on yet. But my point was, is, it's not fifty percent, but we, saturate. I, I think like forty percent. Maybe now it's not the same, but like at least thirty percent of our users came from cold emails. It's crazy. It's like it worked really well for us. Uh, well, that's <laughs> exceptional. Well, I would, I could definitely tell you it would have worked way better. Um, six, seven. My point is, over time, you know, marketing channels they get saturated, or it just yeah, becomes really true. obvious when yeah. it's marketing, and no one wants to be sold to. No one wants to be sold to is more my point. Yeah, um, that's true. You need to hide it. So, that, that's a very good point. Like, you need to sell something but hide it. You need to make it more organic, more natural. Uh, isn't it like if you if you can add humor mm-hmm. into your marketing, that's chef's yeah. kiss. Because <laughs> like you know, it's it it just shows people like, hey, like you know, we're building a business, but like we like to laugh too, and we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Right. And um, that's my favorite type of marketing is when it's like funny and it's something that people are like they engage with it more. And it, again, it's not just an ad; it's creative, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Those marketing campaigns, in my experience, um, are the funnest to work on and they generally perform the highest and people talk Mm. about them. You want people talking about your brand and that's one of the hardest things to accomplish. But once you accomplish that, you get a word of mouth flywheel that's really hard to put back in the bottle once you get it right. Exactly. Really good point. Andrew, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me and to speak with the wannabe entrepreneurs here in the podcast. It was really cool to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. And that's a wrap of my conversation with Andrew. I hope you learned as much as I did and have a better understanding now about the world of selling startups. If you want to know more about Andrew, make sure to follow him on Twitter. His handle is agazdecky. I will also link it in the show notes below. And check out acquire.com. If you are a first-time listener of this podcast, I have a lot of other interviews with many indie makers or bootstrappers. So just go to my website, wannabe-entrepreneur.com and click on 
podcast and you'll see a lot of episodes. Some are interviews, some is just me narrating my own indie journey. That's all for now. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share this with all your indie maker friends and see you next time.